Hello, and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Last time we discussed the early days of Billy Harrison and left him at Hampton Sydney College at the cusp of what was to be a time of great change for both the young Harrison and for the nation as a whole. The United States had been operating under the Articles of Confederation since their enactment in 1781. However, the Articles had proven woefully inadequate for providing for the needs of the new nation. Indeed, even George Washington, as early as 1783, was writing to Alexander Hamilton that, quote, no man in the United States is or can be more deeply impressed with the necessity of a reform in our present confederation than myself. Likewise, Benjamin Harrison seems to have seen a need to change up his son William's educational situation. While we have no definitive proof of such, Various biographers over the years have attributed William's departure from Hampton, Sydney, being due to a religious revival taking place at the school. A religious movement, collectively called the Second Great Awakening, was picking up steam throughout the nation, and a student at the college had attended a Methodist revival meeting during the Christmas season and began sharing the new religious doctrine amongst both students and faculty in early 1787. Benjamin Harrison was a fervent Anglican having gone so far as to have fought unsuccessfully to weaken Thomas Jefferson's Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom in 1785, which ended the special political and economic relationship that the Anglican Church had with the government of Virginia, and instead asserted that, quote, no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, place, or ministry whatsoever. Thus, it is quite easy to imagine that he would have been upset at word of the shift in the religious winds in the isolated community that his son was placed and removed him from there. William was placed into an academy at Southampton County, possibly the newly established Millfield Academy, until he was ready to begin studies in medicine. William was placed in an apprenticeship with Dr. Andrew Lepper of Richmond, Virginia. Lepper's reputation in the community is questioned by Harrison's biographers. James Green calls him, quote, the leading physician in Richmond, while Henrik Borum asserts that he was, quote, third rate in terms of Virginia society, but explains that this is only due to the fact that his practice seems to have been devoted to those on the lower rungs of society, rather than the leading families of the city, and not suggesting anything about his talents. Lepper's office was in a poor part of Richmond near the docks, and Lepper was noted as treating a slave of Patrick Henry. We can only speculate about how this rather unique experience for a Virginia planter's son influenced the young William. He had already been sent to the end of the world and back again, and now was slumming it in the capital that his father had not too long before served as governor, and during which time he had stayed at the governor's mansion. His life was already taking some unusual twists and turns, and the ride was only getting started. It was around this time that Harrison got involved in an emancipation society. The main proof of this that I have found comes from Harrison himself. As early as 1822, Harrison was publicly writing about this, and in a letter from May 31, 1836, Harrison writes that, quote, In the city of Richmond in the year 1790, I became a member of an Emancipation Society, formed under the auspices of Robert Pleasance, a venerable and talented member of the Society of Friends. I then came under a solemn obligation never to hold slaves but to do everything in my power, consistently with the laws, to affect the freedom of as many as I could. He notes that his, quote, father was a large slaveholder, and I had the prospect of inheriting a considerable number of them. Indeed, it was in 1790 that William inherited his first slave from his sister, Elizabeth Rickman, upon her death. Quite possibly because of the influence of the abolition society on his young son, 
William is soon sent away to Philadelphia in the summer of 1791 in order to study under Benjamin Rush, one of his father's friends from the days of the Revolution. Little could he have known that he would never live in Virginia again, and that he was instead being plunged into the affairs of the new nation. Philadelphia was the national capital at the time, and was the premier city for politics, culture, and economic strength. It had just been overtaken as the nation's largest city by New York, but it would be a bit before it would cede the rest of its crowns. Harrison was not alone in coming to the new capital to seek his way in life. Indeed, his own brother Benjamin had studied ways of finance from Robert Morris, the man who would now watch over William upon his arrival. Morris, now a senator from Pennsylvania, and Dr. Rush were preparing to offer the young Virginian an experience much different than his life had been in Richmond. However, this would be a short-lived stop. Soon after his arrival, Harrison learned of the death of his father. His brother Benjamin, now the executor of their father's will and primary heir, called for his brother to return to Virginia and seek a less expensive course of study than that which residing in Philadelphia would entail. Freed now from his father's control, William Henry Harrison would instead make the first of many like-minded decisions and forge his own path ahead. While associating in the Virginia social circle that had developed in Philadelphia, William spoke to Light Horse Harry Lee, a well-respected lieutenant colonel during the Revolution, who had led forces during the latter part of the war at such battles as Guilford Courthouse and the Siege of 96, and was present at Yorktown. Lee suggested an army life to his fellow Virginian, and William took strongly to the idea, so much so that to avoid any interference from Morris or his family, the two worked together to secure a commission for William, despite his being younger than the typical ensign and William was sworn in before going on the same day to answer a summons from Robert Morris to discuss the situation. Morris was opposed and offered numerous alternative options to young Harrison, but William dismissed them all. The army was his future by, insert expletive here. The army of the early republic was a far cry from what it ultimately became, as one of the issues that led to the Revolutionary War was the quartering of British soldiers in the colonies, and the three major cities of the nation, Philadelphia, New York, and Boston, had all been occupied at one point during the war. The people of the new nation were suspicious of a standing army. There was a strong belief by many that a militia system, with citizen soldiers being called up in a time of crisis, would be able to adequately defend the nation while avoiding the potential for tyranny that a standing army threatened. Harrison would have opportunity to see firsthand the folly of this notion in two decades' time. But for now, he became one of the roughly 5,000 members of the U.S. Army. Ensign Harrison marched the forces he had helped to recruit from Philadelphia westward into the section of the country that would be his home for the remainder of his life, then known as the Northwest Territory, more commonly known now as the Midwest. As noted, quote, they rarely exceeded 15 miles a day, and though the roads in the more populated areas of the nation at the time were nothing to write home about, Traveling out into the frontier was exceedingly difficult. However, they finally made their way to Fort Pitt, modern-day Pittsburgh, before traveling down the Ohio River aboard a flatboat to Fort Washington, modern-day Cincinnati. The timing couldn't have been better or worse, depending on how you look. They arrived in November 1791, not long after the U.S. Army had suffered a major defeat. Arthur St. Clair, Revolutionary War General and Governor of the Northwest Territory, had been placed in command of a force sent to pacify Indians in the area. But on November 4, 1791, the tables were turned. An Indian force led by Miami Chief Little Turtle attacked the American forces around dawn, and a third of the army was killed, while the rest scrambled in retreat to safety. 
He was going into the heart of the demoralized force. Because of this and the flood of folks leaving for back east, Harrison ended up with much greater responsibilities thrust upon him than he would have had otherwise as an ensign. It was during this time of service that Harrison would meet two of the pivotal figures in the Army of the Early Republic, James Wilkinson and Anthony Wayne. While not household names nowadays, the two represented the best and the worst of early America. James Wilkinson had been present at the crossing of the Delaware and the Battle of Trenton, but then fell into disrepute for a time due to his involvement in the schemings of General Horatio Gates to undermine Washington during the war. However, after trying his hand at business in the West, he had rejoined the Army in 1791 as a general and assumed command at Fort Washington, where he encountered the young ensign from Virginia. Indeed, Wilkinson played a part in ensuring that Harrison's career in the Army did not come to an abrupt end. Around this time, drunkenness was becoming a major issue with soldiers stationed at Fort Washington. So Wilkinson issued an order that any soldier found in a state of drunkenness outside the fort would receive 50 lashes on the back. To that end, Harrison applied the punishment to an individual, as well as giving, quote, 10 lashes to the offender's protesting friend. The problem was that the individual was a civilian, not a soldier, and that civilian complained to Wilkinson. Wilkinson ultimately smoothed over the situation as he felt there was, quote, no reason to offer further violence to the feelings of Mr. Harrison, one of the best disposed, most promising young gentlemen in the Army. However, Wilkinson's tenure would be short and likely thankfully for Harrison, as unbeknownst to him, and it seems anyone else in the U.S. government, Wilkinson was serving as a double agent for Spain. He would remain on the Spanish payroll until 1807, around the time that he confessed to Jefferson about Aaron Burr's conspiracy to take control of Mexico. We'll speak more about that later, but for now, just know that it was probably a good thing for Harrison that he didn't get too close to Wilkinson and instead hitched his star to the next commander of the military forces of the Old Northwest. When Harrison was ordered to escort Wilkinson's wife Anne back to Philadelphia, he met in Pittsburgh General Anthony Wayne, who had been named to head up a new military expedition against the Indians if peace negotiations failed. As with the other army leaders of the time, Wayne had led forces in the Revolutionary War, with the Battle of Monmouth and the Battle of Stony Point being among the notable battles in which he commanded. Wayne had a reputation for being zealous for battle and was noted as shouting to his soldiers that, quote, I believe that a sanguine god is rather thirsty for human gore, thus earning him the nickname Mad Anthony. Washington's decision to send Wayne to command the Northwest Territory demonstrates his perception of the seriousness of the situation and of his determination for victory. Wayne had earned Washington's respect, and he knew that he was quite capable of the task at hand, though the Secretary of War had warned Wayne that, quote, uncommon punishment not sanctioned by law should be admitted with caution. As with Wilkinson, it seems that Wayne took an interest in the young Harrison, even going so far as to ignore a request from Wilkinson in September to, quote, send me young Harrison if you have no further occasion for him. Obviously, Wayne did have occasion for Harrison, as while he was building what would become his famous Legion of the United States, he had Harrison commissioned as a lieutenant and installed as his third aide-de-camp. His time serving under Wayne would be pivotal to his future life and career. It was during this time that Harrison finally started to make friends in the Army. After his initial shaky start, as he started to show promise and rise in the ranks, he began to fit in with some of his fellow young officers, including someone who has been mentioned before on the podcast, Solomon Van Rensselaer. 
Despite Van's complaints about Harrison only giving him a, quote, pitiful office in his administration, the two would remain friends from this time on until Harrison's death. His service under Wayne would provide Harrison with a first-hand example of how to build an army from nearly nothing and to drill raw recruits into shape. It would also provide Harrison with his first experience with Indian policy and diplomacy, something that would be a major part of his career leading up to the War of 1812. Wilkinson had led a couple of expeditions against Indian forces that Harrison had participated in, but besides learning about the harsh conditions that can be encountered while on the march, they paled in comparison in terms of scale and success to what Harrison would experience in Wayne's Legion. Before that time, though, there remained a tie for Harrison to break. In early 1793, Harrison had traveled back to Berkeley. His childhood home upon his arrival was less familiar now than it had been when he had left, as his mother Elizabeth had recently died. The young officer had come home to sell his remaining inherited property in Virginia to his brothers. Carter would get his small property in Charles City County, while he would conclude a trade with Ben to swap his remaining Virginia land for some of Ben's land in Kentucky. After making some stops to visit friends, including Dr. Lepper in Richmond, Harrison rode up to Philadelphia to collect Dan Wilkinson and return to the West. The lieutenant was going all in for his new home and career. The year would prove to bring news that negotiations with the Indians had failed, and as such, General Wayne and his forces, including Lieutenant Harrison, marched out from Fort Washington on October 7, 1793. Action was slow in coming as the Legion soon after went into winter quarters, with Wayne directing the construction of Fort Greenville, near what is now Greenville in western Ohio. But the span of a year beginning in August 1794 would prove to be a momentous time both in the history of the Old Northwest and in Harrison's life. General Wayne, accompanied by General Wilkinson, began a march north into the Indian-held lands past Fort Recovery. As they made their way up the Maumee River and arrived at the foot of the rapids on August 9th, Wayne called together his officers in a council, in which he ultimately approved a battle plan proposed by none other than Lieutenant Harrison to engage the Indian forces the next day. Despite the day starting out rainy, the troops positioned themselves accordingly along the Maumee the next day, and the battle was underway soon after Wayne gave the order to advance. In the midst of battle, Wayne relied on his aides, including Harrison, to communicate orders to the various parts of the army as, quote, the rainstorm had soaked the drums, which rendered them worthless in transmitting orders. At one point, Harrison is noted as remarking to Wayne that, quote, I'm afraid you will go into the fight yourself and forget to give me the necessary orders. To which Wayne replied, quote, perhaps I may, and if I do, recollect that the standing order for the day is, charge the damn rascals with the bayonet. Another of Wilkinson's aides, Lieutenant Schaumburg, later noted that, quote, Harrison was in the foremost front of the hottest battle. His person was exposed from the commencement to the close of the action. Whatever duty called, he hastened, regardless of danger, and by his efforts and example contributed as much to secure the fortune of the day as any other officer subordinate to the commander-in-chief. The battle was a victory for Wayne's forces and after burying their dead and briefly considering but ultimately deciding against taking the nearby British-controlled fort, Fort Miami's, they returned Fort Defiance. The Legion ended up losing 26 soldiers in the Battle of Fallen Timbers, as it later came to be known, with another 87 wounded, including Captain Van Rensselaer. This battle, however, would serve to bring the Native Americans to the negotiating table the following June at Fort Greenville. 
Harrison would be on site as over 1,100 members, representing a dozen tribes, assembled to attend the Grand Council and parlay with General Wayne. The negotiations would result in both previous boundary lines being reaffirmed and a new portion of land extending into present-day Indiana being granted to the white settlers in exchange for goods valued at $20,000 and the promise of a $9,500 yearly annuity payment. The Treaty of Greenville was signed on August 3, 1795 by 92 Native chiefs and 27 white men, including Lieutenant Harrison. The Native Americans were left with a third of present-day Ohio, and Harrison was left with more experience on how to negotiate with tribes to acquire more land for settlement. Around this time, however, his mind turned from both martial glory and Indian diplomacy to matters more personal. Harrison had found the woman with whom he wanted to start a family. Our introduction to Anna Sims will have to wait until next time, as we are out of time. If you have any questions or comments, or have any ideas you'd like to share for future show topics, or how I can improve the broadcast, please feel free to shoot me an email at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Sources for this episode and other supplementary materials can be found at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. And check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Harrison Podcast. Again, all one word. If you're not already, you can download episodes from both iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks so much for listening, and please join us next time, where Harrison goes according, rises up to his appointment as governor of the Indiana Territory, and puts his negotiation skills with Native Americans to good use for the settlers. Not so good use for the Native folks. Till next time, thanks for listening.